Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from WPRR Savoy Studio, a royal blue studio in the crimson red city of Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us here on Public Reality Radio, WPRR 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, and 95.3 FM, W237CZ, Hudsonville. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Gatland. Morning. And I know this is mostly just exciting for us, but uh, the <laughs> listeners may may um, notice a slight difference in our audio. Um, we are back in our new old digs here in the Savoy studio. Yeah, we're back in the studio we started in, and I, I it feels like home. I'm really glad to be back. Yep. Can I move this mop and bucket out of the way? Because the broom is <laughs> sticking me in the back. Hey, these are these are classy digs. And we, all the dead bodies. Where are we going to stash those? It's well, going to start smelling. We've a got a bit. closet next door, so that'll work out perfectly. So yeah, that's very exciting for us. Now on today's show, we have a uh, representative of the Emergent Church, which is something we've talked about previously. That's right. About a year ago, we did an episode on the Emergent Church phenomena. What was is it this that thing? Far ago? Yeah, it oh was last gosh. summer actually, almost the same time of year. Wow. We actually had several listeners who are fans of the show and consider themselves part of that emerging church movement. Mm -hmm. And they complained uh, that we had dealt with the topic very superficially. But we had a great opportunity to kind of set the record straight and have a chance for any, an emerging church thinker, a leader of that movement, to come on the show and clarify exactly what the movement is about and how they approach the scriptures and theology in general. And that person is Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren has been causing a fair amount of controversy in the evangelical community lately over his most recent book, A New Kind of Christianity, so much so that NPR even covered the story as well. Yeah, you really got to twist Barbara Bradley Hagerty's arm to get her to cover evangelicals, don't you? <laughs> oh. Yes, uh, her article, Jesus Reconsidered, talked about Brian McLaren's new book and a response by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Apparently, they felt McLaren's book was so heretical in nature that they had to have a school-wide event to discuss the book and illustrate exactly why it is wrong. What do we have to do to merit that kind of attention? <laughs> I would like an entire school to to discuss something that we do. And, you know, even when I was at Aquinas, we didn't we didn't do anything like that. I'm disappointed it's in because us. critiques from the inside are treated differently as from critiques from the outside. Uh, That's right. True. Very true. Heretics are always more dangerous than infidels. Mm. Wait, I have a tattoo that says that. Bruce Ware, an evangelical author, is quoted in the article as saying, I've thought of Brian McLaren for all these years as a wolf in sheep's clothing, but I think in this book he took the sheep's clothing off. Oh. Please. <laughs> so what's so controversial about Brian McLaren? He is revising his understanding of many core Christian doctrines, uh, doctrines even like the significance of the crucifixion and atonement. He also believes that 
non-Christians can be saved and can go to heaven. Yep. We're all set. He questions the doctrine of original sin, or at least the understanding that many evangelicals have of it. But he still calls himself an evangelical. Yes, he still considers himself an evangelical. Mm -hmm. He's still within that tradition. Right. And as many critics as he has, he also has many supporters, especially amongst young evangelicals. David Campbell of Notre Dame, in his book Amazing Grace, How Religion is Reshaping Our Civil and Political Lives, he actually shares data that two-thirds of evangelicals under the age of 35 believe that non-Christians can go to heaven. Um, That's compared to 39% of those over the age of 65 that believe that. So messages like McLaren's are going to give kind of a theological structure or underpinning to those attitudes that young evangelicals have. So McLaren is a very important figure in the evangelical movement. And we had a chance to interview him about his book, A New Kind of Christianity. So first, let's start with an obvious question. What is the emerging church? (laughs) Well, as, as you can imagine, I get asked that a lot, Jeremy, and I don't feel like I have a great definition. Because what I normally talk about is an emerging conversation. And what I would say is happening is a lot of Christians, uh, Christian leaders, youth workers, pastors, theologians, from really across the denominational spectrum, uh, evangelicals, mainline Protestants, Roman Catholics, uh, some others, um, have been in a conversation about kind of a retrospective and forward-looking, looking back, saying, what isn't working? What in our history do we see that really needs to be addressed, for example, the tradition of violence, racism, and so on, that, that are quite endemic to Christian faith. Um, and and what, what do we need to change and, and re-envision as we look forward? So, so it, to me, is primarily a conversation. Now, that, that gets worked out by a lot of church leaders and, and their churches, and it gets worked out, you know, in some new kinds of faith communities that are forming. But to me, the most important part of this is a conversation among leaders and not so much a different model of church. Mm-hmm. But it is; it does appear to be a different look at theology than has yes. been taken before, especially amongst evangelical Christians, which I, I would assume that you consider yourself an evangelical Christian. Well, that, that's certainly my background. Um, it's kind of interesting. I, I've discovered that once you start raising some of these questions, a lot of evangelicals want to make sure you're shown the, the borders and, and escorted to the other side quickly. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I should say it, what's been quite interesting to me as a person from an evangelical background is to find the kind of common ground uh, that a lot of us find who are coming from a lot of different backgrounds. Once we start coming together based on questions and struggles rather than arguments and conclusions. Well, I could see why many more mainstream evangelical Christians could find your books threatening. Um, for one, you, you challenge the entire interpretive framework that they that they use when looking at the Bible and understanding the biblical narrative. You talk about in your book a new type of Christianity, uh, what you call the six-line Greco-Roman narrative that dominates so much of Christian thought today. Could you give us a, a basic outline of, of what that is? Sure. Well, um, what... I and, and really quite a few uh, people, including a lot of our leading scholars, are are grappling with is sometime between the time of Jesus and Paul in the first century to about the fourth century, 
the, the, Jew, the primarily Jewish framework of the early way, way of Jesus got changed into something that eventually was adopted uh, by the Roman Empire. And um, I call this the six-line narrative, and it's basically a, a, a plot line that starts with a perfect heaven, I'm sorry, a perfect Garden of Eden, and then a, a, a fall, which represents a fall out of perfection into a state of damnation. And so that's the second line is kind of a fall down. And then the third line is this mess down in, the, um, down in, in this fallen world. Uh, and then from this fallen world, either we hope for salvation, which is kind of a vertical uh, a fourth line lifting us up, which would then lead to heaven, which would be kind of the, the, uh, the fifth line of, of a return to perfection, or uh, kind of the, the trap door going at the bottom would be the sixth line uh, down to hell. Now, for so many Christians, that kind of storyline is what the Bible has always been about to them. It's basically a story of how we start with a good universe and then end up with heaven and hell at the end. And um, a lot of us are saying that something about that doesn't ring true, and we're, we're questioning it. You, you, in fact, say that this is, this is more similar, this story of the fall, original sin, and then salvation leading to either heaven or hell, this is more similar to Platonism, uh, Neoplatonism in, in Greek philosophy, than it would be anything like the Judaism that came before Jesus. Right. What, what, um, this struck me for a couple of reasons. First, because if you kind of arrange those six lines the way that I, I do in the book, you, it, end up, it ends up looking like a fall into Plato's cave, if you're familiar with Plato's famous mm-hmm. analogy cave. Um, and, and, of course, this is of concern to me, not just for esoteric philosophic reasons, but it's of concern to me because that Greek philosophy gets, gets mashed up with Roman politics and creates a very dualistic view of the world, where there's the, the elite, saved, redeemed us, who are children of light, and the damned, cursed, you know, uncivilized them. Uh, and that kind of us-them thinking has has produced and continues to produce an awful lot of problems in every religion, but certainly in, in my own uh, Christian faith. So, so you know, that's been a, uh, that's a pretty pretty significant concern. And as a result, now casting that narrative aside, certain other ideas should be cast aside with it in your mind, like the idea of original sin. Well, yes, I mean, here's where it gets tricky, because it, depending on what people mean by original sin, if, if they mean that that none of us have to be taught how to, to do evil, that we can figure that out pretty well on our own, you know, that's, that's pretty hard to, uh, to contradict. I mean, there's certain kind, mm-hmm. certain kind of romantic temperament that says, no, if we just raise children perfectly, they'd be perfect. But I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But what uh, my concern is, is that under the guise of terms like original sin, with terms which aren't in the Bible, neither is the term the fall, for example, under the guise of these terms, we're importing a lot of later Christian thought back into the Bible when we read it. And I think we have a lot more freedom, a lot more space to work from uh, in the biblical documents uh, than we do when we, when we extract from them uh, this, this, uh, a, gr- a bunch of verses and then plug them into some other kind of a narrative. Uh, a lot of scholars have been grappling with this in recent years from, from a number of different perspectives, whether it's people coming from perspective of the, the Jesus Seminar and the Quest for the Historical Jesus, or because of scholars affiliated with someone named N.T. Wright and a thing called the New Perspective on Paul, and then a whole field that's called 
uh, in New Testament studies that, that, that's looking at the subject of empire and the relationship of faith, God, and empire. And all of these are, are really causing us to, to question this, uh, this somewhat imperial way of reading the Bible. So then one of the, the other conclusions that you know I find quite satisfying, I wish more Christians would adopt this, but it's obviously it's going to be controversial. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't believe that God necessarily is going to condemn these unsaved, originally fallen people to, to hell, that, that people of other faiths don't have eternal torment to, to look forward to. See, this is exactly why this, this issue of, of this narrative is so important, because it, it makes people start with the assumption that, uh, first of all, uh, I think some terrible assumptions about God, that, that God is the kind of being who would uh, wait for, for people to make their first mistake and then not only condemn them, but condemn everyone ever born from them, you know, to, to a pretty horrific uh, outcome. I, I, I just, I mean, it sort of strikes me that, if uh, I were about to create a universe and I could imagine that being a possible outcome, I think I would just decide to wait until I could get a little better design, you know. Um, and so I understand why a lot of people are skeptics and atheists when that's the kind of faith that's, uh, that, you know, they're, they're uh, presented with. Um, to me, if our starting point is that we're all uh, human beings created in God's image, made in this beautiful world, part of this unfolding, evolving creation, and um, and we have certain tendencies that are very self-destructive, both individually and as a species. And and of course, our species then can have a terrible impact on a lot of others. Um, that, that under those circumstances, uh, we're we're in need of help. We're in need of guidance. We're in need of healing and liberation and uh, and all the rest. But that's a very different storyline than assuming um, that we're that our greatest enemy is is an angry God. Well, I really like that idea, and I, I could see how um, it, it fits with some of the best themes that you'll find in the Bible, themes of a, of a God that is merciful and patient and, uh, and is always guiding people, no matter how wayward they insist on going. But there's another image of the God in the Bible as well. I'm sure you're aware of no doubt that there are passages where God is wrathful, where he is jealous, where he makes claims to exclusive worship and condemns those those who will follow other gods. Yes, there, there, no question. And as you can imagine, uh, since this book came out, I've had no shortage of emails from a lot of my very conservative uh, friends uh, asking me if I've ever read those verses, so yeah, I'm very familiar with them. Then I want to get to a next important point of your book, which is how you believe people should interpret the Bible. You say many Christians interpret the Bible as a constitution, as some sort of legal document, yes. whereas you believe it is better to view the Bible as a cultural library. Can you explain more what you mean by that? Yes, well... You know, it's understandable to me why people would want to read the Bible as a constitution, because in Western democracies, the constitution is the most sacred uh, document that we have, and it's what liberated us from monarchy. So we see constitutions as an incredibly liberating thing, and so we love the Bible, and, and we naturally want to elevate it to the level, the highest level of literature that we know. But there's the problem with that uh, approach is, uh, well, there's several problems. First, when the Bible was written, there was no such thing as constitutions. And so, you know, we're, we're engaging in a kind of anachronism in doing that. 
secondly, um, the Bible uh, is not a good constitution because constitutions are inherently, well, first of all, they have a group of authors who get together at the same time and place and design them to address the same uh, situations. But, you know, the Bible is a collection of documents that emerges over many hundreds of years, and they were dealing with a wide variety of different circumstances. And so uh, I think a more honest and actually more helpful uh, and respectful uh, metaphor to bring to the Bible, and it's actually not exactly a metaphor, it's just honest. The Bible is a collection of documents, and and a word for a collection of documents is a library. And uh, when you think about the function of a library, whether it's a medical library or a law library or uh, a Shakespeare library, is you, you want to get together a group of different writings about the same thing. And so inherent in the idea of a library is preserving different perspectives. And this, to me, helps us deal with the Bible more honestly when we say the Bible is, is supposed to be a book of differing perspectives. And, and that diversity isn't a flaw in a library. It is a flaw in the Constitution. But that diversity of perspectives actually is good for us. Uh, in, in approaching the Bible the library. I was once a Christian and came to realize exactly that point, that there are so many differing perspectives, that this is a dialogue that was going on in debates over time. Yes. But at the same time, I think there are passages where the Bible does seem to make that claim for itself, to read it more constitutionally. So, for example, the, the Torah. The Torah is God's law, and it is even based off of, if, if you look at Hittite treaties and, and other Near Eastern texts, it is deliberately patterned off of a legal document, or even the tone of the, the prophets. The prophets aren't saying, let's engage in a cultural discussion about these things. They are saying, I'm speaking what God wants you to hear, and you yeah. should listen or, or have to endure you know, pain and suffering as a result. Well, this is where it really gets interesting, Jeremy, because, you know, I can't speak as a Jew, we, 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 but it would be interesting to get a couple of rabbis together and talk about this just in terms of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, but let me offer my perspective as a Christian on this. You're right, you have the Torah, which makes these, you know, pretty, uh, as you say, exclusive claims, and there are very definite cause and effect. If you do this, things will go well. If you don't, uh, things will go badly. But then, a couple, some hundreds of years later, you have the prophets come along. And it's interesting, even in the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophets are in a big argument with, with the, the more priestly Torah. Um, mm-hmm. So the prophets will say, oh, listen, all of your sacrifices don't amount to a hill of beans if you don't care about the poor. And so um, they, they basically say, you can follow all of the morality of the Torah, but if you don't care about the poor, it's a waste of time. So I think in the Hebrew Scriptures... We, we see that kind of tension, and and different movements or denominations within Judaism, some of them favor the Torah over the prophets, some favor the prophets over the Torah. A lot uh, basically focus on later theological reflection on both, and they, that's how they subvert that problem. But for me as a Christian, this is especially interesting, because you would think that as that my fellow Christians would would believe that somehow Jesus would be a decisive factor. And and this, to me, is the way out of that dilemma for Christians, um, and that is to see that the Law and the Prophets are engaging in important discussions and arguments, and we believe, as Christians, that Jesus enters into that, and we ought to pay special attention to what he has to say. 
and, and to what he does and so on. One of the things that came across my mind when reading your book was just how much I agreed with you on, on so much of this information, and yet I seem to have taken a, a different path. And the question yeah. was, what makes us different? Why, why? When I was looking at some of the same evidence you were of these changes and these disputes in the Bible and the, the prophets you know, attacking the, some of the Deuteronomist perspective and, and that, yeah. my conclusion was this is a, this is a human document that inspiration gets in the way of really truly understanding this for what it is and yeah. and looking at it as a human evolution suddenly makes everything make more sense now yeah. now you have most of the same ideas but you still view that the bible is inspired despite these differences and conflicts yeah you know it's a real, it is i, I mean it would be fun to talk more deeply about why you know you and i raised similar questions and maybe came to different conclusions but um, I think one of the issues that is, since I'm assuming you came from a, uh, a background somewhat similar to mine, one, uh, yes. I'll just tell you one of the critical issues for me was this. I, I came from a, a very fundamentalist background, and what I was basically given was take our approach or nothing. You know, it's mm -hmm. an all or nothing approach. Mm -hmm. And um, my background, uh, my sort of educational background was in literature. I was a college English teacher before I became a pastor. And um, I think that really helped me because in literature, you know, you're, you're trained to find meaning and value in literature, <laughs> and mm -hmm. nobody ever thinks that, you know, it, it was inspired. Uh, so right. you, whether it's, you know, Kurt Vonnegut or John Milton, you, you're looking for meaning in it, but you aren't demanding it be inspired. And, um, you know, a lot of people would say a, a piece of fiction or a book of poetry or a single poem or a movie has become one of the most important sources of meaning and purpose and direction in their entire lives. And they aren't claiming it's inherent, and they aren't claiming it's divinely inspired. So I, I guess maybe that's why I didn't feel it was an all-or-nothing thing. I, I felt like I could see that the Bible is truly a human document, and yet see it as something through which uh, important, life-changing uh, inspiration, and, and uh, maybe I could even say revelation could come. I think Western society would be much more impoverished if, if it never had the Bible. But at the same time, you, you do believe the Bible is inspired in some sense. It's not just human authors. Right, right. What, what, is, what is the nature of that inspiration or, or evidence for the well, idea that the Bible is inspired? Yes, I do believe the Bible is inspired, but what I do in the book is I, I, when I grapple with this question is I do a reading of the book of Job, and what's so interesting about the book of Job is it is an argument. It's an argument between Job and uh, three and then joined by a fourth friend, who, by the way, if, if any of us had friends like that, we, you know, we have reason to be as depressed as Job was, um, because these friends just bring him all these religious platitudes, and they blame him for his problems. And, uh, in fact, uh, you get the feeling Job, in the presence of these friends, feels a lot like a lot of people do today in the presence of of their religious friends. Mm -hmm. And then God comes on the scene at the end, and, and what's so interesting is God doesn't answer all the questions or solve all the mysteries, but God basically tells Job's friends that, that they're kind of a bunch of knuckleheads and blowhards, and that Job, who's been asking the questions, is actually the one who's been speaking rightly, and not those friends. Well, it, it's really a remarkable thing. 
certainly not a simple little uh, uh, thus saith the Lord, here's the way things are. It's it's really quite complex and deep and rich and sophisticated and ironic and all kinds of, uh, you know, other non-obvious things. And and that, I, I propose that as a model of the way that we have to read the Bible. And mm-hmm. so when revelation happens, in my mind, it, it, it happens not through simple if-then, A-B statements. It's not that simple. It, it, it happens in the midst of confusion and subversion and surprise. And, um, and I guess, to finally answer your question, so for me, the issue of inspiration, you can't talk about the inspiration of the Bible if you don't talk about what, what you know, we Christians call the Holy Spirit. But in some way, it's not just words on a page, but it's our interaction with words on a page in the presence of, of uh, God somehow getting things through to us. Now, I believe that happens through the Bible, but you know what? I'm looking at my window right now, and there's a beautiful blue sky and gorgeous trees, and, you know, I, I believe that happens through creation. I, I think, in that sense, revelation is ubiquitous, and, and it's all around us. So, anyway, those are some of my, my thoughts on that. Job is, is, I think, my favorite book of the Bible, I, and, and I pr- like it precisely for that reason, is that it's dealing with the ambiguities of life, and some of the standard uh, religious answers are shown to be lacking in Job. Yeah. Um, I like Ecclesiastes for the same reason. But my, my issue, you, in, in your book where you talk about that, you, you describe the, the inspiration or the revelation as coming through that conversation. Yeah. And I like that notion, but at the same time, it seems to me then, then God is God is inspiring people then. If, if you look at all the genocides, if you look yeah. at you know the, the, most of the Hebrew Bible, yeah. he's then inspiring a lot of bad conversations. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, there are some people correcting it, um, but there, there are some very false notions too. Why would God permit all those atrocities? Yeah. And, and it's even worse than just permitting them, isn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, if you take the text that just on surface value, it's, it's God commanding these, these horrible atrocities. And, and that's why I, I can't accept sort of the, the very traditional, um, literalistic, constitutional way of reading the Bible. Um, I think another assumption that, that a lot of people bring to the text is an assumption about the way God interacts with human beings and the universe. And that assumption that people have is that God is in a deterministic relationship with the universe. In other words, that God is pulling levers and flicking switches and pressing buttons, and, you know, that God's relation to the universe is one of machine operator and machine. And in that case, then God tells the Israelite machine to go kill the Canaanite machine and wipe them out. I, and I just don't think that's a, a sensible, uh, a, a, uh, a tenable and, and morally acceptable way to think about God's relationship with the universe. I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. And again, I know people can quote verses from the Bible to defend it, but I also know you can quote a lot of other verses from the Bible that subvert that view. And, well, abs- and, absolutely. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, by the time we get into the New Testament, that kind of thinking, it, it's replaced by love your enemies and everything else like that. But but I guess my question for you, trying to wrap my mind around how you look at the Bible, I mean, would passages then in Joshua that, that require that kind of religious warfare, are, are those inspired 
still in your mind? Or are those portions that accidentally got into the Bible or maybe shouldn't be there? See, my, uh, here's, uh, I suppose I won't have a good answer for you for that, because I, I, let me just think, do I think they're inspired? Well, let me put it this way. I think there's something we can learn from them, Mm -hmm. um, that we can learn from them today. But um, I guess if if you were to put it this way to me, um, do I think that God told Joshua to go kill men, women, and children? Um, Well, I could only say yes to that if we accepted the fact that human beings were even more violent back then on a sort of day-to-day level than they are now. I mean, now we just sanitize and anesthetize our violence, but we're still horribly violent. But, you know, in a world of warlords, there's just constant violence. And so here you have a, a group of homeless people who, according to the narrative, have been slaves, and God is in the process of trying to liberate some slaves. Here's to me where you have this moral dilemma. If you say that God is not going to be involved with human beings in all of their mess at all, you know, then you have this sort of removed, um, more of a deistic vision of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you say that God is telling them to go commit genocide, then I think you have this deterministic vision of God. But what I would hope is that there might be a third alternative, and that is some sense of a God who's interacting with people and bringing them along. And again, you're probably aware that there are huge textual questions and historic questions about historicity of the Exodus and the historicity of the conquest, you know. And and so then we have to deal with not only the question... Luckily, it probably didn't actually happen that way, which is is actually saying a good thing for the people who were involved. That's right. And then we're left with the question, what's the purpose and the rhetorical purpose and the effect of telling these stories after the fact, you know, or, or I mean, telling these stories about, about their past? So it really does get quite complicated. But what I would say is this, the primary narrative of the Hebrew Scriptures is that God sought to liberate some slaves. That in itself is a radical revolutionary idea, because in the ancient world, the gods were seen as being in control and the gods work with the people of power. God, you know, the gods support the status quo uh, and the powers that be. Here is God subverting uh, the powers that be and working on behalf of slaves. I mean, that is a remarkably subversive idea. And when you see the Exodus narrative, including the violence of the of the uh, escaping slaves, when you see it in that larger light, it looks different. <laughs> That if you try to pull a verse like that out to justify the United States going, you know, the most powerful, well-armed nation in history, to justify it going and cr- crushing some other little country. See, so it, this is where it all gets very complicated. It's not just what the text says, but it's how we use the text, and uh, that's, I think, one of the reasons why people like you and people like me are very uncomfortable with this conventional way of using the Bible because. No doubt. It becomes usable in, by, in, in, in horrible ways. The liberation theme, the theme of, as you've put it, God being on the side of the oppressed, not the oppressors. Yeah. I, I think that's a thread in the biblical narrative that is not nearly emphasized enough. Those who do not, those who emphasize the warfare, usually yeah. have some sort of political or religious prejudice that is behind their interpretation. But that that cultural bias can work both ways. I, if, if we want to see God in the liberating parts of the Bible, 
but see human beings in the you know the despicable acts recorded in the Bible. My question for you is what's what's the criteria? How how do you go yeah. about judging what is the message that we should hear and and what is old that we should discard? Maybe the, the best answer I can give to you on that, Jeremy, would be to just tell you what I, I remember exactly the afternoon where I started questioning the traditional view that I was given, and that very specific example might be somewhat helpful in this. But you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist context, and then kind of was. I, I became a pastor, and I was working in a kind of a somewhat progressive evangelical context. But I had never really questioned very deeply some of these issues about the Bible, inspiration, etc. But I was reading an article by a, a, a seminary professor named Walter Brueggemann, a very wonderful author, wonderful person. Um, and um, Brueggemann asked the simple question, what is the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, attitude toward the monarchy? Now, the monarchy means the, the, the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, as soon as he asked that question, I could think of uh, the, a Bible verse from, uh, from Samuel that talks about that when people wanted a king, they were rejecting God as their king. So the Bible is against the monarchy. And Walter Bergman mentions that. But then he says, well, what about all these other passages? These other passages that say, no, the kingdom was a great gift. You know, God, God shepherded the people through the king. And, and um, people, at the end of the book of Judges, the, the, the people are in a mess because they didn't have a king, and everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. And that afternoon, as I was reading that article, I saw that there is this tension and this ambiguity and this multivocality, this plurality of voices in the Bible. And I remember the feeling I had. It was, it was a humbling one. Instead of putting me over the text, using it like a tool, suddenly I felt humbled. And to me, this is the key issue. If we're going to keep from using the Bible to commit atrocities, then we're going to have to approach... What we need is this posture of humility. And without that, I I think we'll take any piece of literature and we'll turn it into a club and damage people with it. And and especially one with a Bible that has some rough edges if we're not careful. So I, I suppose I don't have an answer better than that, that it just has to do with the posture of humility that we have to have. Well, you, you might like our show. One of the conclusions we, we often come to is that one of the most dangerous things about religion is, is not always the teachings or the beliefs or even the texts. It's, it's the authoritarianism that uh, yeah. some people approach it with, that that can become a volatile mixture. It seems that we both recognize that. My, my approach yeah. has been to, to view this as a purely human thing, and, and you are trying to reclaim some new way of interpreting it. Um, uh, even if we may disagree on some of the points, I, I certainly wish you luck in this uh, in this cultural battle that you are in to, uh, to make people more humble. So thank you so much, Brian McLaurin, for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Thanks. Great to be with you. Thanks for your great questions and the good work you're doing, too. So... That was a interesting interview, Jeremy. Um, I guess the the thing that rang out most for me is how respectful the interview was, um, both on your side and on his side. There are going to be some of our listeners who are going to accuse you of playing softball, of, of Larry Kinging. Uh, McLaren here. <laughs> he had suspenders on too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess I plead guilty uh, that the point 
I think the entire point of the interview was to let this guy on mm-hmm. a, and for him to really share his position and share it in some detail. And I don't think we would get um, a clear idea of where he's coming from if I was interjecting criticisms all the time. I mean, I do think I asked some important questions. I and agree. and I, I think uh, the very simple, straightforward, non-gotcha questions that I asked him were uh, difficult enough. Um, but I thought it was more important that we understand where he's coming from first right. uh, and then critique it. Now, I do have some criticisms of, sure. of his ideas. And um, McLaren has said that he would be willing to come back on the show and he's most certainly welcome to, to come back on and, and discuss these further. And I just think it, it speaks to kind of our mission statement with the show here that it wasn't to just have him on and make him look like a fool. And I don't think he is a fool for the record. I think he's a very smart man. No, I don't think he's a fool at all. And I guess so my attitude towards the emerging church movement has has changed a little bit. Um, in our previous episode, we, we were looking at it as very much a postmodern phenomena. One emerging author called himself post-systematic theology. We have people like Rob Bell saying, you know, why worry about the springs? That is the theology of the trampoline. Just enjoy your life in Christ jumping on the trampoline. I think my attitude very much was that some of these emerging church people are – they're trying to cast aside any attempt at a coherent theology. They're, They're really trying to create a theological vacuum so that they can create space to insert whatever feel-good message they want to have and just not have to deal with those difficult parts of the Bible. My impression after reading A New Kind of Christian was that there's a lot more to the story than that, at least in McLaren's case. I do think he's legitimately trying to grapple with some of the tough parts of the Bible. I think he's trying to develop an interpretive framework for how to approach it. I think he, he clearly evaluates and even at sometimes revises traditional doctrines uh, in the light of that framework. So I think there is some real intellectual work that he's doing here. And I also think after reading the book that he reaches many sound conclusions on how one should not interpret the Bible. Hmm. That is, he makes it clear this is not a science textbook. He appreciates the role of myth in these biblical histories. He's not going to treat them as literal modern-day histories, and he makes very good convincing cases um, to his audience for accepting that. Sure. He has – he very much – and you could hear this in the interview – he acknowledges the disunity of the Bible, that there are many different perspectives right. and they cannot all be harmonized. The problem with McLaren in my mind is that I don't think he's given us any sound conclusions on how we should – interpret the Bible, especially interpreting the Bible as a inspired text. Well, the one word that it pivoted on was was, was criteria. Yeah. Does the text contain any criteria to determine which parts should be taken with a grain of salt and right. which ones should be? If it's inspired, how do you determine, you know, and I, I was, as I listened to the interview, I'm coming at it from a psychology perspective of, you know, cognitive biases mm-hmm. where people seek to confirm the things that they believe already and, and to poke yep. holes in things that, that – clearly to them look plausible and and what other conclusion can you come to other than you're using your own sorting screen and where does that exactly. come from if yep. you're saying that stoning children is wrong but the golden rule is a is a is a good rule 
what's the criteria that you right. use to yeah. do that? It's a human criteria. It's the right. same frustration I have with, with all um, liberal uh, religious people is the – you know they're cherry picking just as much as the fundamentalists who focus on say God hates fags these seven passages in the Bible blah blah blah. Well, the liberal Christians are are just picking a select uh, group of verses too that they choose to yeah. uh, call legitimate. And, and it's very if they could give us a clear process as how how to they arrive at that conclusion right. without just working from their their preferred values. If they could show us that process, then we could say it's not arbitrary. It's exactly. not just like what the fundamentalists do. But yeah, as you pointed out, Dave, that's that's hard. And it, and he he seemed to acknowledge that he doesn't have a good answer to that. Right. Right. Uh, he did say the Holy Spirit plays a role. He said humility plays a role. Uh, but to me, that that doesn't really solve the problem. It it basically dodges the problem. Exactly. You're, you're muddling it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Then, we, then we have maybe even a more difficult question as to who's being led by the Holy Spirit. It, it just doesn't seem to be a realistic solution. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I, I walked away from this interview, maybe not changing my perspective on the emergent church so much, but I, I did find that I appreciated – um, the work of McLaren. I, I still think Rob Bell is kind of yeah. full of it. We'll no offense to our emergent church listeners, and we we do have some, but I just you know this this dodging yeah. of we don't want to we don't like you said we don't want to talk about the stri- the springs. Let's just uh, enjoy the the ride. Uh, you know the emergent church as a whole. I don't think is represented by uh, McLaren. That may indeed be true. Um, but it's you know it's it's a matter of recognizing there's going to be there's going to be differences within any movement. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now, as far as technically some of the things that McLaren says, some of his views of the Bible, I just acknowledge several areas where I think he's right on. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other things that I think he he has to be very selective in his approach to actually reach these conclusions. And in the beginning of the interview, you guys may have noticed uh, we, we were talking about this. Uh, six-line Greco-Roman narrative he talks about. There's sin, there's a fall, then Christ comes with a redemptive act and it can lead to either one of two outcomes, either salvation and heaven or damnation and eternal torment. And he rejects that whole thing. And it's interesting though, the way he rejects it, the way he rejects it is by trying to say that this is a later interpretation, presumably of early Christian fathers, where they are reading in a Platonist or a Neoplatonist Roman imperialist philosophy into Jesus' life, into the Old Testament, and, and that's where they're getting that narrative. It's it's being imposed on the outside. I, I guess I can concede a little bit of that to him in that atonement and salvation and all those doctrines are are evolving doctrines within the New Testament, and it depends on which gospel you turn to or which epistle you turn to. You are going to get some different views. But as far as eternal torment, that's that's all over the New Testament. Yeah, and, and pretty directly. I mean, we have the parable that Jesus offers of, of the rich man and Lazarus, where the yeah. rich man is suffering in a Dante-like hell, only yeah. hot. We're, Dante's hell was mostly icy. Where one drop of water can bring you a thousand years refreshment. Yeah, right? exactly. And when Jesus, the son of God, talks about eternal damnation, I, I tend to take that as right if, if if the rich man and Lazarus was an isolated case, I think McLaurin's idea works better. 
But it's not. You have the parable of the sheeps and goats right. where, where Jesus is sorting souls, some to damnation, some to salvation. Uh, you have the Sermon on the Mount where there's it's it's not in parables. These are moral teachings. That's and right. he says, true. if your right hand sins, cut it off because it would be better to enter into he- the kingdom of heaven without a hand than to enter into hell with a full body. Every time you look at his gospel, the gospel, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins because the kingdom is at hand. That good news is always, almost always accompanied by references to avoid the wrath to come. Jesus talks about separating the wheat and the tares and the tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be hewn down and cast into the fire. There are many, many declarations by Jesus in the Gospels and outside of the Gospels. You have uh, the epistle writers making some of the same claims too. You just can't write off hell as an invention of the Romans. So is it a – so he's suggesting that it's all in the interpretation, um, not that later writers came in and added this material in. He's just saying that this is an interpretation that's – that, that doesn't hold up with the original text. They borrowed it from Roman culture and Roman sure. thinking and we need to look at the kind of overall message of the gospel which is one of liberation and salvation. But but to me, I think that the damnation theme is, is just as strong. present as yeah. the salvation one. Absolutely. I, I don't know how he would respond to that. I'm guessing he might say, well, that's kind of a constitutional reading of the Bible, all right? Uh, mm. that, was, that was his big beef. But that's – we're not just polling – a single proof text out of context and saying, hey, well, here it says there's a hell, so there must be. Right. I mean, it's a consistent theme and in fact, it has a historical precedent too. He seems to think this is a kind of a Roman interpretation. If we turn back to the Jewish framework, we would understand that the narrative is quite different. But in the most Jewish of the gospels, which are clearly Matthew and Mark, mm-hmm. those the most Jewish of gospels you have the strongest apocalyptic elements. In fact, it, the whole phenomena of Jewish messianism in this area at this time, preceding Jesus by hundreds of years even, um, we get apocalyptic prophets over and over again. So there is a historical precedent from mm-hmm. it. It's Ironically, it's the more Gentile gospels that have a more Gentile focus like Luke and the gospel of John. The Gentiles are more Gentile. Well, they de-emphasize the apocalyptic stuff. It's it's right. conspicuously absent in the Gospel of John, which not surprisingly in McLaren's book, that's where almost all of his discussion of Jesus comes from, is from uh, an in-depth look at the Gospel of the John. The Luke-Acts series is about how to live in the Roman Empire as a Roman citizen. It's 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 not really like you're going to die and that's the end of it because it forms an arc. So he downplays right. the things of, of you know the world is going to end pretty soon. So I simply don't think he's on any firm textual ground for rejecting this this idea of eternal torment. Right. One other thing, and I actually didn't catch this during the interview itself. It was only going back and editing it that I realized how he really responded. Do you remember when I brought up the whole thing with uh, Joshua and uh, God commanding Joshua to kill oh, yeah, men, women, yeah, and absolutely. children, yes. genocide? Yes. And I asked him, you know, did God inspire this? And he really couldn't give me a position. He didn't want to say that God directly told Joshua that. But he also didn't want to say that that has nothing to do with God. He said right. that God's with us in our mistakes as well. He wanted some sort of third option where God is carrying us along. 
if you go back and you read in his book where, where he talks about this, he gives more information as to what he thinks here. He He's of the mind – granted, he does use a lot of hedge words like maybe, so I, he could probably wiggle out of this one. But I, I think his opinion is that human beings were so barbaric at one point in time that they weren't ready for the more compassionate gospel of Jesus. Yeah. And so God kind of catered to their mentality for a while, um, trying to eventually push them and instruct them and get them to learn that really he's about compassion, not about exclusive worship or genocide or anything like that. Yeah, and he I uses, don't really buy that argument. I, I don't either, uh, yeah. but it's interesting. The analogy that he uses is uh, he uses the analogy of a math teacher. He says yes. a math teacher if you're teaching very young children how to do arithmetic, you don't teach them about negative integers right away. Right. You initially tell them, you know, look, you cannot subtract a higher value like six from a lower value uh, like four. And once they actually learn then, they have a grasp of arithmetic and positive integers. Then you spring on them, OK, what I told you before wasn't entirely true. Does that imply that as integers. humanity evolves that we're going to get a different moral code that's even – like the moral codes of the present day will be as outdated. Yeah, actually, he is yeah. consistent yeah. in that. Oh, he, good. he does well, say he, uh, he. So some of the categorical things like abortion's wrong and blah 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 and races, those things could be supervened by at some point by a future code. Yeah, he mentions things almost like more um, environmental or even a lot of animal welfare stuff. He thinks you know he kind of sees on the horizon maybe one day will. Will view eating meat as completely wrong. So, I, of course, I adored that. I just don't think it works in the biblical framework. I mean, if if you take that analogy seriously, well, what was God hoping to teach them initially through commanding genocide? Right. And if if you want to stretch the analogy even further, you know, a math teacher would would never use the strategy of not teaching negative integers if it if it were to create long lasting misunderstandings. That would be a terrible strategy. So it's like Yahweh apparently is not very good in his pedagogy. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because people didn't get that message and those passages are still used thousands of years later to justify violence. So it also would imply it, that it just that, doesn't make sense. That different groups, societies are at different levels of moral understanding. So it seems to be kind of stratified. Some people are now more capable. The Greco womans are more sophisticated than the herding tribesmen of the right. of the desert that, that they have a different code that applies to them. And That's, does that mean we throw out all of the moral codes of the Old Testament because those are are relics from a less evolved society? I don't think he would do that. He would try to look back at it and see, well, what is it that we can learn about this? And then cherry this? pick which ones we but, keep and which we don't. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. – I guess this is why I'll always be of two minds when it comes to liberal religion is that on the, on the one side, you can definitely see the good that comes out of it. Um, Brian McLaren's uh, view of Christianity is – is a very positive one compared to a fundamentalist Christianity. Absolutely. He's, he's going to be doing more good than a lot of us to actually affect the church and to, and to really change the, the, the character of it. It's, it's undeniable that this is a step in the right direction as far as the worldview of Christians and, and how it will impact their political views as well. But it, it comes at a price of intellectual integrity. 
If you're going to adopt a position like McLaurin's, you need to develop skill in selecting evidence. You need to get better at evading uh, or at least becoming more comfortable with inconsistencies and contradictions in your perspectives. And uh, it, it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from Thomas Paine. A religion thus interlarded with quibble, subterfuge, and pun has a tendency to instruct its professors in the practice of these arts. They acquired the habit without even being aware of the cause. It is the reverse of truth, and I become so tired of examining into its inconsistencies and absurdities that I hasten to the conclusion of it in order to proceed onto something better. And now God thinks like you. So in God Thinks Like You this week, we're talking about Luke's favorite subject to talk about. Cat? <laughs> yes. Politics and sex. They go together like politics and sex. And, and not uh, not just uh, political scandals this time. Yes. Um, there's been some, some interesting convergences lately with the uh, – with differences between – uh, religious areas and uh, relatively secular areas or maybe liberal religious areas or traditionally known as the red versus blue model. There was a, a study uh, a couple of years ago by uh, the authors or Connor and Carbone. They uh, talked about two different family models, a red family and a blue family model. And a lot of this stuff actually I think that it bears repeating even though we might have touched on it before and that is it goes against what the conventional wisdom is that the godless liberal – East Coast latte sipping Volvo driving people are have looser sexual morals and therefore they have their people running amok. Boy, here's hoping. Uh, and whereas the the small town Sarah Palin Americans are the moral yeah. types. But yeah, the the red family blue family models. What it essentially says is is that the areas of the country that are traditionally the more conservative ones have a higher proportion of religious populations. Pretty much so, the middle of the country. Yes, the South and uh, the West. Uh, those uh, are characterized really by a different model of family rearing. They try to usher their children towards earlier ages of marriage and childbearing. And they essentially try to decrease the gap between sexual onset, where the kids become sexually active or what's called in the literature sexual debut, and they they try to decrease the gap between that and childbearing and marriage. It's the new answer to abstinence-only education. And yet they have much higher rates of divorce and they Mm -hmm. also have higher rates of teen pregnancy at the exact same time. There is a slight difference in the teen pregnancy rate, but the the larger difference is the teen birth rate. Exactly. Right. Yep. Which means that contraception and abortion is coming into the Right. So the blue model is later age of childbearing and marriage. So we're talking a difference between like the early 20s and the red model to on average the late 20s and the blue model. And both the red and the blue model, the sexual onset is about the same time. That is the religious red state types are not having sex later. They're having sex in some cases even a little bit earlier, but on average about the same as the blue states. What's happening there is that in the blue model, there's the sexual debut, but then a gap as the people are essentially becoming educated, trying out different lifestyles, different partners, and then the predication for marriage is when you're ready, when you're emotionally and financially ready after you've got a job or something like that, then you have kids and get married. You're you're ready for marriage as opposed to just being horny and looking for a moral way to... and Essentially, the red model is that marriage is based not on emotional stability or financial security. It's you're sexually active, you're ready for marriage now. That's right. Shotgun weddings. 
Yeah, right. shotgun wedding, weddings is relied on, and then the abortion rate is vastly different too. As and this is as you would imagine that that the uh, red model discourages at all costs abortion. Look at the Bristol Palin model that they, there really isn't any condemnation necessarily that she had the kid outside of wedlock as long as she didn't have an abortion. Whereas in the blue model, it's not that they look positively on abortion, but they use that as one fallback. What the worst case scenario for there would be is having a kid before you're ready to care for the kid. That's right. So, so like Jeremy mentioned, we see a, div- a divorce rate that's stark different between the two that you have the red and the red states. The divorce, the divorce rate is higher than the blue states. And obviously these things are complex because things tend to be correlated with each other. There's socioeconomic differences in the red states and blue states right. as well. So yep. like yep. Massachusetts right. is the uh, – and the Connecticut, those states are the typical blue states. They're much more well-off SES-wise. But even when you control for that, you still find differences that are not explained through just socioeconomic and things where yeah. the where you have – uh, higher divorce rates among Car- religious states. Carbone's study, she she determined that the driving factor was that women in blue states wait longer to get married. It's actually the age of marriage mm-hmm. uh, and the age of childbirth. Yep, statistically, when you let that these made things, the biggest difference. When you throw everything in a pot and try to predict these things, the one that comes out as the strongest predictor of divorce is early age of marriage. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that the teen, and that's a lot of that's driven by teen. It's not just, well, if you wait till you're 50, you'll never get divorced. The curve starts to bend a little bit when you get into the mid-20s where, sure. for example, the difference in divorce rate between when you get married at 30 versus 25 is not that as different as 25 and 20. Which it makes sense. I mean if you're you, – you don't really know who you are and what your values are. Um, you're, you don't have that type of judgment when you're a teenager. <laughs> that's a very blue to state be choosing, way. To be choosing a, a life mate that's going to be compatible with you. It, and, it, and, and there's also other things, other factors that play a role too. Usually couples that are going to marry young and try to have a child young, that's going to mean less of an opportunity for schooling. That's going to mean quite often some financial insecurity. But one of the worst things to ruin a marriage is dealing with financial issues. I think there's been independent research, correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, uh, that shows that a vast amount of divorces are a result of arguing over finances. I think even the majority of divorces. That's the other strong predictor. It's correlated with, but that the stronger predictors of divorce are early age of marriage, but also lower SES and financial stress. That's right. But that's a, what you just said, though. What you outlined is a very – that's a very blue state way of looking at things. You're, you sure. seem to be assuming that the whole point of marriage is, to, is emotional and financial stability first in order to lower the consequences of, of possible divorce and, and your own personal But instead, we, sh- we should be assuming – the red state model would challenge some of those uh, preconceptions. They would say that, uh, that um, yes, clearly you'd have to – any reasonable red state model would person would have to concede that these things predict divorce. But they would say you need to suck it up and it doesn't have to be that way, <laughs> which is uh, – yeah. the other thing I wanted to mention was that, that I uh, linked to these things. I read a, uh, an article from Christianity Today by a sociologist named Mark Regnerus or I'm maybe pronouncing it wrong. R-E-G-N-E-R-U-S, who's well-known. I've read his work before, and he's highly respected. He deals a lot with things like the demographics of marriage and child-rearing and families. But his article is titled, The Case for Early Marriage. 
in a Christian forum, as a Christian himself, he's advocating, he's acknowledging the fact that abstinence education, for one, doesn't work, as we've talked about, uh, and that it's it's folly to try to enforce long periods of abstinence. And, he, and it's great that they're finally picking up on that. Yes, and so I was, I read on with interest. Uh, he conceded that, uh, that the model of where the average age of marriage is now in the mid or upper 20s with people, that it's unrealistic to expect. Mm-hmm. teens to abstain from the sexual onset through, you know, basically essentially 10 years till we get them married. Right. Uh, right. And then your jaw, like and mine, probably dropped then, when you came across. What does he say? I guess I should have been prepared by the ca- the title of the case for early marriage. <laughs> well, but, yeah, yeah. So that's a little disingenuous. But yes, it, what was I shocking don't... to me was that he then essentially said, therefore, the solution to this then is not to be afraid to encourage children to marry earlier. To, to be fair, what he's arguing is not necessarily teen marriage, but he's saying early 20s right. is not so bad. As soon as you can. Yeah. Uh, Which adds, adds on the pressure too. The motivation for it though is to avoid premarital sex. It's to avoid I mean, sinning. That, that is the yeah. driving – he doesn't have the overall stability of the family. He, he seems – he talks dismissively of romantic relationships right. and, uh, and all this. It seems to be the, the one driving concern is – we got to stop them from having sex before they get married. And it doesn't even seem to be to avoid getting STIs, to avoid pregnancy. That It, it, it seems to me to avoid the sin of premarital well, sex, he fornication. Right. He acknowledges too that the, the, what we kind of uh, alluded to at the start of this that was funny and that is that the presence of masses of single women in churches looking for a man who's a marriageable type. He sort of makes a reference right. to that as, as a common almost an in-joke I guess among Christians and that is that there's a shortage of decent marriageable men for all the women in the congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, well, and I the guess, ones that are there are mostly gay. So yeah. A different episode, maybe. Ah, yes, yes. But that, uh, uh, but that the um, one out of ten actually. There's the, some data on that. Is that true? One, one out, out of ten. ten? Yeah. My goodness. Maybe That's not, not a different episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, we'll, wow. we'll no, carry but, on. But what he what he conceded was that there is a sort of uh, stereotype or uh, a, a at least a recognized truism among the churches that there are, one of the negative aspects to delay marriage is that women become less marriageable. The few, the scant men in churches tend to be sucked up by, there's a high competition essentially for these guys. Yeah. Uh, and that, um, and so that, they're getting the young, attractive ones, whereas anyone who hits 30 and is unwed, well, they're pretty much out of luck. The, the stereotypical red model is like in the Mormon church that there are women there who say that there's full court press on them to quickly get married. And if you're in the upper 20s or early 30s and you're still in a Mormon Stick, I guess they call them the smaller groups there. That you are like a freak there because yeah, it's like being an actress in Hollywood. Once you reach that age, it's pretty much done for. What about Meryl Streep? Yeah, she plays grandma. Anyway, so what was I think what was jaw dropping and shocking to me about Regnerus's argument though is that to combat what we just talked about as the obvious correlates of early marriage with divorce, and that is essentially he seems to be saying there's ways around that. Yeah. And so one of the things he right. talks about he is like – He has full knowledge of what the statistics say that early marriage pretty much spells out high likelihood example, of divorce. But you know what? He knows all the factors that are playing a role and yet he seems to think, well, la, 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 we la, can la, just, we can just avoid all of this. Let me quote. The age at which a, a person marries never causes divorce. Right. Rather, young age of marriage is <laughs> yeah. an indicator of underlying proclivity for marital problems, the kind most Christian couples learn to avoid or solve without partying. <laughs> now, what seems to be the do, case do with – the statistics bear that out? Yeah. Is he aware of the Christian divorce rates? My sense of what he's arguing here is that there's the way it is, and here's the statistics, 
but here's the way it ought to be, or it shouldn't yeah. be that right. way. Of course. It's sort of hand-waving. Well, sure. Yeah, like his first point is economic insecurity. He realizes how much that plays a role in divorce. After acknowledging that, then yeah. he says, but good marriages grow through struggles, including economic ones. Yes, in an ideal world, libertarianism <laughs> makes sense too, but it ain't happening here. And he goes through several other similar points where like em emotional immaturity, uh, but you can rely on other people to help you out as a community. We should support these people. Or he acknowledges that, you know, that uh, a, a rushed search process to get married and, and not have a lot of experience with different people can produce a bad outcome if you're rushed. But that here's again where um, he brings up the concept of the covenant, that the reason that uh, religious people sometimes have successful marriages is that they view it not just as you know, not a just secular a, thing but right. as a covenant between two people. Cindy Metzen of University of Texas, the same university that this guy teaches at, mm. showed that there was no difference in the level of infidelity between religious and non-religious. So <laughs> these covenant marriages don't seem to make a difference there at, least at the infidelity I, well, rate. Well, but maybe you just stay married um, – Despite the infidelity. Well, that's – some people view that that the restrictions against divorce are essentially a barrier to getting out of something. Yeah. That doesn't mean necessarily that's successful or happy. But that, but that means it's even less successful because if that's true, they still have a higher divorce rate. So That's true. The red state model that doesn't view marriage as a vehicle for personal fulfillment. Mm -hmm. uh, and that a lot It's of a societal you, good, you, right? If you're in there and you have – especially if there's kids, suck it up. You, yeah. you made a commitment and you should stick with it no matter what. Love will grow over time in the commitment that you they have to They tend to, to view the blue model yeah. disdainfully where they view it as it means that somebody could get out of something if they're not happy Anytime anymore. you're not happy, you can get a divorce. You know, but still, that's at odds with the facts. Right, right. <laughs> I mean I understand they're theorizing and what they think, but yeah. it doesn't match reality. But he acknowledges the facts. It's – almost schizophrenic. Like, here are the facts, but I don't think they have to be. It reminds me of the Robert P. George segment that we did where we talked about uh, his one flesh unity model of marriage as, seem, as begging the question. I mean, we sort of took him into task mm -hmm. because he seems to build a philo philosophical case after the fact about why sex, child-rearing marriage, it's not about personal fulfillment. It's about this one flesh standard from God, essentially. Yes. This model comes down from on high. Which what we argue is why can't gay parents be good parents, good couples? He would say that that's irrelevant. I seem to get that flavor from this too, that if you come back and say, right. but these people in a marriage, if you prevent them or discourage them from divorcing, they won't be happy. These type of people would say that's not the goal and that's dangerous to have a model based on your personal fulfillment mm -hmm. because then you can leave when you're not fulfilled anymore. Okay, But if you can leave when you're not fulfilled anymore, if that's the whole premise, then they still have to confront the reality – that that's not how it works. The data doesn't represent that. Yes. The, the, the divorce rate is lower amongst the blue people. They aren't just leaving when it gets uncomfortable. And the reason why is most likely because they were more established in their relationship mm -hmm. and they were on firmer grounds just as individuals yep. than these other people were. You can make an empirical case that marriage and child rearing based on things like 
economic stability rather than you just you're having sex now so get married is actually empirically I think I can make a case that's a better model. And in fact, there's a couple handful of studies out there on the abstinence only sex education. There was a program that emphasized abstinence not from a moral view. They didn't say you're it's wrong that you shouldn't have sex, but what they said was think about your education. Yeah. That was one of the few programs that actually showed a difference. Yeah. It's much more effective. When they way. emphasize mm-hmm. to them the reason that you shouldn't have sex is not because it's it's you're going to go to hell, but because think of your future. That that was the type of motivation that was the only type that was successful of not yep. having sex. And in fact, that's what you find with the reason blue teenagers, that is the ones that are raised in more secular or liberal religious households, they, the reason that they postpone having sex is not from a moral standpoint. It's because they have they're going places. They're going. They have a plan with their life. They want to go to college, right. and that that seems to be successful. Yeah, and and speaking as a father of four with a fifth on the way uh, daughters, I'm all for abstinence. <laughs> okay? Clearly. But, well, I mean, not me personally. <laughs> hey, hey, I only made one of them. Um, but, um, you know, but that's the reason why I want my kids to be safe and responsible is because of the effect it can have on your life if you're not, as opposed to this is wrong. And well, this is what we try to, what we try to teach them too. It's, yeah. it's not that it's a an evil thing. It's that this can really screw up your life. You have plans. You have things you want yeah. to do. On a, on a broader, more philosophical level, it's just always a problem when you're working from a theory that at no point tries to check itself against reality. Yeah. Yep. If, if you're not willing to test the theory and see if it actually matches up with how the real world actually works, then the result is exactly what we're seeing. <laughs> People red... following a nice idea into dead-end marriages, into divorce, into children now who don't have you know as stable of families to raise them right. and all the impact that divorce has on children too. Lies don't work. That's just that's just yep. the Absolutely. the facts well, of the matter. The red uh, the red and blue uh, family authors also take this even further down to its core in that the the model is not just on that on child bearing and and, and it's based more on a, a different philosophy of that emphasizes obedience and patriarchy. That is right. that 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 the girl going straight to your sexually active from your parents' house to marrying somebody and starting your own house. That's basically a sort of model of marriage that's that's the traditional model of patriarchy and, and obedience to some sort of male figure. Whereas the blue model or what's evolving more in Europe and the blue states here is that it's based more on valuing the autonomy of women. Mm-hmm. That is when you give women education and choices that they can make the decision about that. And I think that's one of the reasons why – and we've talked before on the show about groups like, you know, Focus on the Family or that the the historical roots with like the Phyllis Shoffley movement mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. that that their fundamental thing really isn't about necessarily homosexuality itself or divorce itself or sex itself. It really gets at their value their value system is predicated on obedience to authority. Uh, mm-hmm. In this case, the form of the parents, the fa- especially the father. If you look at all the child rearing books by Dobson and yeah. all these things, really what they tend to emphasize is especially with young women, the disobedience to their male authority figures. Mm-hmm. And that the reason that the red, the blue model is so threatening them is because it tells women, look, you make your own choices. You do what you want. You don't need to depend on the family or on a husband. You, there's a period of independence between your sexual onset and your marriage where you can determine your life course. That's very threatening mm-hmm. to red state people. All right. Uh, and now it's time for Stranger Than Fiction.
Lord Jesus Christ run down in crosswalk. I think we can leave it there. That's pretty much it. <laughs> that is it. Uh, happened in Massachusetts. Um, woman ran down, uh, ran down Lord Jesus Christ as he was crossing the street. Yeah, yeah. His legal name. They opened up his wallet, looked at his license, and his legal name was Lord Jesus Christ. How do you explain that to your kids? <laughs> I yeah. got into an accident. I hit Lord Jesus Christ. When you mow over the least of these, <laughs> you're doing it to me. <laughs> there was an opportunity here to if the newspaper, the journalist wanted to be kind of a wag as to say that he was helped by a good Samaritan at the side of the road. So. Uh, yeah, nice, nice, nice. She really Woman, nailed him. Well, well, the le- then this is the from the Associated Press um, on NPR. It's uh, the victim may have forgiven the woman who ran him down in Massachusetts, but police haven't. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Woman, where are your accusers? They're handcuffing me and throwing me into the cab. <laughs> it brings new meaning to the term crosswalk. Ooh. Ooh. I'm on fire. Yeah, man. That victory. Uh, Luke Luke wins this one. I All still right. think over, mowing over the least of these was the best joke. That was it, good, too. There's just, is the funniest. I... That's, what, that's what the iTunes reviews say. Yep. Bastards. Anyway. That's all we got um, for this week. Um, that's going to do it for us. Until next time, you can visit us at our website, www.doubtcast.org. Email us, comments, questions, challenges. I suspect this episode may garner uh, some response, especially from our uh, emergent church listeners. Please, uh, if you are a member of the emergent church and listen to the show, let us know what you think. I'm very interested. Uh, that's, again, doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Zazzle at slash doubtcast. That's all. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time right here on Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.